Tonight, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to pick up around verse 22. Uh, before we do, let's take a moment and share some prayer requests, at least get some things together where we can pray for people, and then from there, uh, we'll go into the teaching. Um, so we need to keep Barbara Th- uh, Tom- uh, what's Thompson? Thomas. Thomas. Barbara Thomas in prayer, uh, she comes to church with Gordon Michael and uh, has been part of our fellowship for quite some time. And while she was up in Cape Cod, she was doing an ascent and started feeling some different symptoms, ended up in the Cape Cod Hospital where they said, you have a brain bleed. And so they rushed her to uh, the hospital in Boston and they got her the proper care and they've been, they put her in an induced coma. They tried to bring her out or they started to bring her out on Sunday and I think it was Monday when she finally woke up. But right now the issue is that until all the blood can drain from the brain, she really can't stay awake long. So she comes in and out. And this could be, you know, weeks long, the process to naturally allow the blood to be released from the brain, the pressure that she's been having. So keep Barbara Thomas in prayer, if you will, please. I know she will appreciate that. We also want to remember uh, Cindy Dampier. Uh, She and Yale are members of our fellowship, and they attend on Sundays. And Cindy had major surgery, um, removing her lymph nodes and uh, her thyroid. And some good news came from that, but I think just the she still very much needs our prayer. Isn't it interesting how you can go through a surgery and things go according to plan, and then coming out in the post-op, her blood pressure, they have not been able to regulate it. And uh, so she's having an issue with that, and also the port is not draining properly. So they're going to keep her until they see, you know, progress there. So... Uh, very much Cindy needs our continued prayers. But uh, Pat O'Connell, her mother, Pat, you wanted to share a testimony? Please come and share. I feel Pastor, I'm compelled to share this because if I don't, God's going to be really mad at me. <laughs> Here, go ahead. I'm, I'll hold okay. it for you. Uh, Cindy was diagnosed with thyroid cancer four months ago. A lot of you know Cindy. And... Um, Anyhow, she had a biopsy done here. It came back inconclusive, and they said, well, we'll wait three months. And she said to me, Mom, I really think God is leading me to go to Mayo. And boy, was he leading her to go to Mayo. Mm. (laughs) So she went to Mayo, and she had another biopsy done, and it came back that she did have thyroid cancer. Didn't know what kind. There's three kinds. One of them is you die within six months, and the Mm. other two aren't too good either. But anyhow, so... Uh, we've been going now for five months, not knowing whether this kid was going to mm. live or die. She's a Christian. She saved. She gave it to the Lord. Yes. Anyway, she was she was ready, but uh, she had her surgery yesterday, and the doctor surgeon told her, <coughs> excuse me, told her that he was going to have to remove most of the lymph glands on the right side. Her uh, um, pericardia had a tumor in it, 
he had to remove that, and he was going to have to remove the, the thyroid, and he didn't know whether she was going to have to go on radiation or not. So uh, what we found out, because she had this strangling feeling all the time. So what really happened was he removed about three or four, he had to remove just about three or four lymph glands. He went in to look at the pericardia and get the tumor. There was none. Amen. It was, and Cindy, he showed it yesterday, or Monday, he showed it to her on an x-ray. Wow. Showed her where the, t the tumor was. Wow. And so she's, um, she had her thyroid removed. Uh, her pericardia is fine. She does need specific prayers she's asking for. And that is that these lymph glands that come back from the pathologist do not have cancer cells. Yes, yes. And I had prayed, I'm praising God because before the surgery, I prayed specifically that the operation, the surgery would not be as intensive as what we heard right the day before, and it wasn't. Praise God, so, amen. Anyhow. Wonderful, amen. That's really good news. Uh, Cindy is in Jacksonville at the Mayo Clinic, and so keep her in prayer. Barbara is up in Boston. I'm, I don't know the name of the hospital, but it's a really good one. In fact, Gordon said to me on, on Saturday, uh, Sunday morning early, he said, you know, never want to see anybody go through what she's facing, but boy, is God not good that he put her in one of the best hospitals when she had this issue. And so that's, that's a believer who's giving God all the glory, even when there's trials. We, sh we still have things to be thankful for, don't we? Amen. So why don't we begin with prayer tonight, and let's remember these requests and many others. Father, tonight it is a joy to pray, uh, to come before you. We don't want to come with a trivial prayer. We don't want to come with a general prayer. We come with, with emotion in what we're praying. We are thankful for the report that Pat just gave us on Cindy. We're thankful that at this point, there's no radiation. Now, that could change, but Lord, we're giving thanks. We're thankful that there was no sign of the tumor that the doctor saw earlier in the week. So we are so thankful, Lord, for what you're doing in Cindy and how she, through it all, even through the, the strain and the stress of the last five months, has continued to hand this over to you and she and Yale and, and to trust you, and her parents trust you, and God, you are at work, and we give you glory for that. And we, we just thank you for the answer of prayer that, that uh, you were able to wake Barbara up uh, from the induced coma, and that she is, little by little, improving. And we continue to lift her to you, Lord. We pray that you would be with uh, her two daughters, be with uh, Gordon, uh, her fiance, and I pray that, Lord, you would have your will, your way in, in both of these ladies. We are thankful to you. And Lord, that they're not the only two. There are so many who are facing trials and setbacks and sickness, infirmity, and we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who uh, is working in and among your people. Your word is truth. You have given us promises that if we will walk by faith in them, we actually see your hand at work. And Lord, it doesn't matter whether we get what we pray and ask for or not. You are still sovereign God who has a plan. And the Bible says you bring all things to good 
for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we hold on to that truth in Jesus' name. Father, tonight, bless our time in the Word. May it be insightful. May it be uh, uh, something that energizes us as we think about our prayer life, as we think about the whole idea of worship. And we just give you praise and honor. Amen. Okay. Uh, first, let's review where we were uh, last week in the first part of chapter 8, where we see Solomon, who has brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the temple to be placed in the most holy place, okay? And verse 4, if you look at uh, 1 Kings 8, verse 4, "...and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were, uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So all of this is happening. The ark is coming up. The Levites, the Levitical tribe, who never was given uh, inheritance of land from God, the other 11 tribes were given land. He comes to the 12th and he says, okay, Levi, uh, you're not going to get any land, but your inheritance is going to be me. You get me. And that's what made them the priestly tribe. And so here they are doing their priestly thing. They were supposed to move the ark, and they were doing this. The priests were with them. And, uh, and while that's happening, uh, the, uh, Solomon and the congregation of Israel are with them. And they're making great sacrifices of animals to the point that they couldn't number how many animals were, were killed, were sacrificed, wanting to make sure to bring to please the Lord as they are bringing the ark into the new temple that, that the Lord instructed David and Solomon to build. Verse 6, Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. We talked about cherubim last week. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. I think I said it last week, but I'll say it again. Even back uh, when you go back into uh, the, the God instructing Moses to build the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies uh, was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a symbol, a picture of heaven. And that's why in the Holy of Holies, they had cherubim. And of course, we talked last week about how cherubim are the angels that are closest to God. They're the ones in his presence. And so, and the seraphim as well, the seraphim also. So uh, verse 10, and when the priest came out of the holy uh, place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this manifestation of God's glory comes in the form of a thick cloud that you could not see through. So thick. So thick that the, the priests were unable to perform their priestly duties. So God put uh, all of the perfunctory duties, the rituals that the priests were instructed to walk by. He said, hang on a second, stop that nonsense. Uh, focus on me, my presence. And his presence was real. Could you imagine just being in the crowd and seeing this cloud that comes 
and then it comes into this holy place. And the priests who just set the ark in there, uh, they are just probably just blown away by the awesomeness of the holiness of God. And uh, the cloud was the glory of the Lord. It was a visible symbol of God's presence. Uh, the, The cloud signaled the Lord's approval of the building of this temple, just as, by the way, the same thing happened when the tabernacle was dedicated under Moses. God filled it with a cloud. So the very same thing. And what was it for? So that they, in Exodus, turn, let's turn there. Exodus 40, verse 34. I'll give you a second. Go there. Exodus 40, verse 34. We might get an insight into what and why God is presenting himself in a thick cloud here in the, the dedication of the temple by just looking at the dedication of the tabernacle. And so it says in verse 34 of Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. Uh, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So for Moses, that was God's final confirmation uh, before the people that he approved of their building of the tabernacle, that they had followed everything just as he said. They were obedient, and they did it by faith. And so God shows up. There's the proof, yes, you did it right. Okay. So here in 1 Kings, the same thing. David was given the instructions from God for the building of the tabernacle. He passes it on to Solomon. Solomon builds it. All of that you can find in the Chronicles. Uh, And he builds it, and now God shows up. He's affirming, you did it the way I requested. If you don't do it the way I request, I'm not going to show up. And he wouldn't have. The same is true now, carry forward. You've got the tabernacle under Moses. You've got the the temple under Solomon. Later would be the Herod's temple. doesn't matter which event you look at. All of it is a type or a picture of the once for all sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And if Jesus had not fulfilled perfectly the the sacrifice, the atonement of death for our sins as the sacrifice, God would not have raised him from the dead. But because he did raise him from the dead, That is our proof that the Father in heaven received, accepted the work of the Son on earth for the forgiveness of our sins. That's your guarantee. You say, what's my guarantee that I'm saved? Because you know Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, the plan that God had for your redemption was real and acceptable in the eyes of God. And the fact that you have believed in Jesus as God, as the Son of God, who paid the price for you, you are saved. What's the guarantee of that? The Holy Spirit. He is your guarantee. He lives in you. If if you had not truly been saved, the Spirit of God is not in you. Because true salvation is the regeneration of your 
soul, of your spirit. Before you're saved, your spirit is dead. You're just a natural man. After you're saved, you're no longer a natural man, you're a spirit man. Because the Holy Spirit, He regenerates your spirit. It was dormant. It comes alive, and now He lives in you. Your body is the tabernacle, the temple of God. He dwells within. Isn't that beautiful? So we have two outward external pictures of the internal work that Christ, the perfect Lamb, has, done, has fulfilled for us. I just love that. Then in verse 12, once the ark was in place, Solomon turned to the Lord. Before he prays before the people, he first prays to the Lord alone. He's facing away from the people, turning to the Lord. And look what it says in verse 12. The Lord, here's what he said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So after he addresses the Lord, and by the way, now, is God still living in that temple? No. That temple was destroyed, completely wiped out. So what happened? He said that he would live there forever. Uh, something better happened. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, came into us, and now God says, I live in you. And for us, it's not temporal. No man can destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. That is for all eternity. There's your forever right there. Amen? We, we really, what a blessing to be, to be born after the work of Christ on the cross. Because none of us deserved it. Nobody's earned salvation. It is fully the work of God and that He would call us to salvation to begin with. So after He addressed the Lord, He then turned to address the people who gathered at the temple. And here's what he said in verse 14, Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. So this entire time, and we're talking a long time for the whole dedication. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the intercessory prayer yet of Solomon for the people before God. But this whole experience, it had to take hours. And the people stand, never do they sit. Not in the presence of the Lord. It was the same way when the, when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity. And they came back and it was Ezra, the, the scribe, who found the book of the law, the Pentateuch. He brings it over to Nehemiah and he says, look at this. And they take it and they had the people gather and from, it says, from morning until noon. Okay? So from 6 a.m. until noon, or at least right around that amount of time, the people stood while the word of the Lord was being read out of honor and worship of the Lord. There is something in Scripture, Old and New Testament, that addresses the idea of having the right posture for worship, posturing yourself to worship. We see in Scripture, we see the bowed head. We see in Scripture closed eyes at times. Here, we saw Solomon turn away from the people and put his arms up, giving this picture of openness, reception to God. 
as he prays to God. We see the uh, bended knee in Scripture a lot. And yet none of those, does it say this is the guide, you got to do it this way all the time or God won't hear you. These are just models or pictures of right posture in worship. How many of you have seen the folded hand? Uh, it was really cool on Sunday. We had lunch with uh, Mark and Victoria and little Elon, and then uh, Brenton and Andy were there, and we had a precious time having a lunch Mother's Day celebration, and we were going to pray, and they looked at Elon, and they said, we're going to pray, and she is just a little over a year now, and she does this. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So she's learning, she's being taught right posture for worship of God. And again, let me just say, this is not a legalistic thing. We're not, I'm not trying to pull you into a legalism where if you don't do a particular type of, then God can't hear you. We know that that's not the case. We know that God does hear us. And, and so it's a matter of, because he, he, he's a spirit and needs to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Okay, it doesn't say anything about the posture there. But these are just uh, repeated postures in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And there's nothing wrong with us from time to time practicing them. Amen? It's a good thing. Don't get in the habit of the only time you pray is before a meal. That becomes a human tradition more than it is a biblical model to follow. We can get trapped in those things. So it's good, you know, to when you have your family come and visit or you have children in the home, it's good to take other times just to say, hey, let's, before we go to school this morning, let's stop and let's pray and give God thanks for letting us go to school and letting us learn. And Mark, letting God allow you to listen to your teacher and obey her. So we had to say to our son, uh, uh, so, you know, these are opportunities. And through the day, Rini and I will get word about you know, the Barbara Taylor thing, or we hear the report on Cindy, and we just stop. And that's when we pray. Let's just pray for her right now. That's a good thing, to not be driven by a ritual, but driven by a heart compelled to practice this wonderful attribute that God has given us called prayer. What a blessing that God would allow us. What does this, the old hymn say? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. It's beautiful. So th this is where we are. Uh, after he addresses the Lord, he then turns to address the people. And here's what he prays. Then the king turned and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he, what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that uh, it was in your heart. In other words, uh, okay, the good news is 
thank you for having a right heart to want to build me a house, okay? Nevertheless, but here's the bad news, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Again, there's a double meaning in that verse, okay? That's speaking of Solomon, his son, who would be born to him, who would build the house. That's the, that's the present sense of that meaning. And then the future sense of that meaning is that through the bloodline of David, Jesus was called what regarding David? The son of David. Through uh, your bloodline, um, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the son of God will be born and he will build a house and, and I will live in it forever in the hearts of people who believe. Now, the Lord had, has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon is reminding the people of the plan that God gave his father and the fulfillment of the promise that David's son would build it, and how God is faithful to his promises. And that's all good. It's true. But the problem is, in chapter 9, God has to remind Solomon that it's all contingent on faith and obedience to God. Just because I made a promise doesn't mean I'll fulfill, a fulfill the promise if you are unfaithful. Now remember, church, we're talking Old Testament. Christ has not yet become the final sacrifice. So they are still under the law. They have to obey. Solomon did not. And by chapter 11, Solomon has drifted away from the Lord and the people fall with him. It's just a sad tale. It's almost like a picture in a small, very small way. You look at our nation, because we're only 200 years old. Israel was much older. But in a small way, we have seen the same, where maybe in the founding of our fathers, while they were not all Christian, they did believe in a higher power. Some were Christian. Most of them, not all, but most of them believed in God. Okay, they were deists. And, and, and they took, when they formed our, our early documents, uh, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, when you look at our Constitution, when you look at these forming documents, they are filled with the principles of the Bible. Nothing in them relates back to the Quran. Nothing in them relates back to Mormonism. It's all coming from the Bible. And, and the God said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. He wasn't meaning that everybody in the nation is saved. He wasn't even meaning that all the leaders were saved. What he's meaning is those who lead the people fear me. They recognize me and they fear me. And I'll bless them for that, even if they're not saved. And you do understand God has saving faith, and then he has just general common faith that he gives to everybody who's not saved. 
So you have faith that saves by what? By grace through faith, right? He also has a grace that he provides for the person who's not saved. It's called a common grace. Ours is a saving grace. Theirs is a common grace. Everybody out here driving by is living under God's common grace. What is God's common grace? They're allowed to live. Even though the wages of sin is death, we should all be dead. We, we're not dead because we receive Christ. They would not receive Christ. Why are they still living? Common grace. They have common grace in that they are able to have a life. They're able to get married. They're able to have children. God didn't withhold any of the common graces from those who did not believe, even to this day. But see, here's what happens with grace. It can happen on the common level and it can happen on the saving level. And that is we presume upon the gracious hand of God. We become presumptuous. We somehow just take it for granted. And so people out in the world who are having kids and having a job and they get a raise and everything and they don't even believe in God. They're just kind of living for themselves and they give all the credit to themselves for anything they've achieved. It's God has nothing to do with this. This is all me. And yet God allows them to still live. But they're, they're presuming upon His common grace. And as Christians, we presume upon God's saving grace. We, we just, all of a sudden, now we're saved. I've got my ticket to heaven. Let me kick back and take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And we're no longer serving the Lord. We're not walking close to the Lord. We don't have an intention of our heart that's bent towards the Lord. And we begin to just kind of coast. And it's almost as if we're adrift, even though we're not. We're saved, but yet we're not making any progress. We're certainly not fulfilling what, what Paul spoke of in Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before you were born, before any human being was born. God already knew you. Your name was already written in the book of life. And he already had works for you to do because he knew what gifts you would possess. That you would walk in them, that passage says. So we presume on that. And we're not giving to God of our gifts. We use our gifts to make money. We use our gifts to bless our family. But how are we using our gifts to bring glory to God through his church to bless other people? Even those who are only under the common grace of God by caring for them, loving them. So you see how, it's, how easy it is to presume. And this is, this is what happened to Solomon. He began to presume upon the grace of God. Even in the Old Testament, God has shown grace. Again, Adam and Eve sinned. They should have died. There shouldn't be a Moses. There shouldn't be a David. There shouldn't be a Solomon. There is, why? Because of God's grace. But Solomon, who started out with his heart bent towards God, loving God, serving the Lord, following the instructions implicitly, now all of a sudden, in chapter 11, he's completely fallen away. It's just sad. Um, let's, let's just go ahead and, and move further down to verse 22. This is actually where I wanted to start tonight. <laughs> 
So, verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Now, when you read that, do you not get the sense that he is very, in his mind, he's thinking clearly about the conditional statement, I will bless you if you obey me. That, that says that Solomon really got it. He communicates this to the people, okay? Somehow between chapter 8 and chapter 9, Solomon begins to turn away from fulfilling his part of the covenant that God gave him. Uh, so he didn't dedicate the temple from within the temple. He, he, he could have stood, you know, at the... No, he couldn't have because Solomon's not a priest. Even though he was king, even though he was wise, and even though he had great discernment and wealth and honor among all nations, he still was not worthy to enter into the holy place of the temple. Only the priest, okay? So he has to stand outside with the people to pray. This is the difference between living in that day before Christ's death and living in our day after the death of Christ. We can pray anywhere, and we are in the Holy of Holies because it's right here. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. I love that he spread out his hands toward heaven, another posture of worship. Today, most of us close our eyes, you know, or bow our heads. What was it that Vance uh, Schreckengas one time said? The pastor in Daytona where I grew up, mom and dad were very involved in the life of the church there. And the pastor would invite, I think on Wednesday nights or Sunday night service, he'd let different men, laymen in the church, come up and say a prayer, you know, one of the prayers. And so Vance Schreckengas came up and, and so he said, why don't you bow your eyes and close your heads? <laughs> Do you remember that, Mom? <laughs> you hadn't thought about that one for a long time, had you? <laughs> Bow your eyes and close your heads. <laughs> I think God let him off on that. God knew what he meant, and uh, uh, <laughs> I just thought that was good, though. Uh, so he spreads out his hands, and, and he prays. Uh, this was, by the way, an Old Testament gesture, a recognition that I... When I address God, I need to be receptive to God. This is not about me. This is not me. Look at me, look at me. This is, oh Lord, that you allow me to be your child. So that's a good thing, okay? So the Bible says, lift holy hands to the Lord without anger and wrath. Uh, so this prayer is a full, it's, it's loaded with quotations from the Pentateuch, some of which are almost word for word, while others are simply a sense of a particular passage in the Old Testament. When I say Pentateuch, in particular, the Pentateuch's the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, but I mean specifically uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's taking, he's extrapolating passages in this prayer, which teaches us something about prayer. It's good to pray scripture. If you really want to pray according to the will of God, pray the Word of God. It's the greatest prayer. I, I had a friend 
who I used to love to hear him pray. He, he never prayed out of his own thinking. He just prayed scripture. He just quote one, at, one passage after another in prayer. Michael Meyer, remember that, Scott? And, and he could just go, he could go a whole hour and just, just fill the prayer in the presence of God with God's word. You know that has to honor the Lord, especially if the heart lines up with the words. Now, to pray for an hour the scripture and not have a heart that is given to God means nothing to God that you're quoting scripture. Okay? Jesus even got on the, the Pharisees for that. You know, you, 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 you honor me with your gifts, with your tithe, and you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So we have to be careful there. And so and it says in verse 20, and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. So Solomon is recognizing here that God is completely unique. Now, the world's religions today, I want to say this about the world religions, because some of us have been taught in the university to study all religions, different kinds of religions. There's, you know, there's five great religions of the world. I say great only from the world's view, okay? And the reality is every single one of them is false. I don't say that braggingly. I don't say it obnoxiously. I don't try to show arrogance by saying it. I'm trying to say to you, this is what the Bible teaches. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. And so this leads me to just say a couple things to you. Um, by the way, Dean Ng, I-N-G-E. Write this down. Dean Ng. If you write that name down, Dean Ng, I-N-G-E. Listen to this quote. You're going to want this is a one-sentence quote, but man, it is profound. He says, oh, he said, uh, he who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. He who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. You say, what, what do you mean spirit of the age? Any religion is of a false spirit. I, I'm not saying it's not a spirit, but it's not the spirit of God. It is the spirit of the enemy. And if you marry that religion, you will be a widower when you stand before God. I don't say that, again, braggingly. Very humbly, I appeal to you not to take a syncretistic approach to God. He will not honor it. You cannot throw a little bit of Christian or a lot of Christianity and a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism. You can't throw these things together and come up with your own cocktail. That is an affront to God, the one true and living God. He will not accept that. And I just think it's very important. Let me share this with you. So one of the things we need to watch out for is worshiping a false god. 
God will not let you off the hook if you have substituted the worship of God with any other form of false religion or false God. False God is not necessarily just a religion. False God can be gold, it can be silver, it can be money, it can be prestige, it can be status, social status. Many gods, it can be children. You worship your children, you worship your grandchildren. Anything other than God is a false God. And God will not tolerate, He will not share His glory, the Bible says, with anyone or anything. So we have to be careful there. Secondly, so you can't, you can't worship false gods. Secondly, you can't worship the right God for the wrong reason. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not in that first category. Woo! Whew, man, I only worship God. But what's the motivation of your heart in your worship of God? This is where Solomon starts out well. And within two chapters, he changes. And now he's worshiping the right God the wrong way. Let me give you a third one. God will not honor worship that comes from a self-serving style. You cannot pick and choose and add to the Bible and the worship of God Little kind of things that you think are cool or, man, I just need some of that. I want some of that. Um, when you see in a church where they are practicing extra biblical uh, tribal things that do not line up with the Word of God, God does, that's not cute to God. They can speak the name of God. They can say they're functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll give the Holy Spirit credit for things that the Holy Spirit would never do. A few years back, remember back probably 15, 20 years ago, remember the holy laughter that was seen in some charismatic churches in the Brownsville revival up in Pensacola, was it Pensacola? I think it was Pensacola. And Literally, in the service, the preacher would just get up. I think it was Rodney somebody Brown, Rodney Howard Brown or somebody. He'd just get up and start speaking, and people start laughing in the crowd. And before you know it, literally, people are laying on the ground, rolling in the middle of a worship service. And he just keeps on preaching. And the more he preaches, the more they laugh uncontrollably. And they said, they called it, the name for it was Holy Laughter. No picture of that anywhere in the Bible. Yet if you spoke to people who were part of that in some way, shape, or form, they would absolutely disagree with you that, no, this is of the Spirit of the living God. The only things that are of the Spirit are things that we see in Scripture. The Spirit doesn't speak on His own. Jesus said that. He never represents himself. He's certainly not going to step outside the framework of God's word and worship and create an alternative worship that's more fun. And that's what that was. 
And that's just one example. I could give you many examples of a self-styled worship. I go to this church because this is what they do in that service, and I really like that. Okay, here's a question for you. You say it's worship. Worship of who? You're going there because they do what you like. That's self-focused. God does not share His glory. He does not share worship with self-styled self-focus at all. Another example, let me take you to the Old Testament. Uh, Aaron, they were, uh, it was the day that they were going to, they had just brought uh, Nadab and Abihu uh, before uh, the priest, and they were going to dedicate these young men who were raised up in the priesthood, they were Levites, and they were going to be dedicated, basically ordained, that kind of a concept. And so in their first opportunity to go into the holy place and offer up incense to the Lord. What are the incense in the holy place? It represents a, a presence of God and a worship of God. It's a sweet fragrance to his nostril. And they go in there, and it must have been, many will say, many scholars believe, that they were inebriated from the party. And because prior to that, God spoke and said to Aaron that I will not allow, I won't accept drunkenness. He addressed that just a few verses earlier. And these boys go in there, and they didn't do everything just as God had uh, instructed the, the Levite or the priest. They offered, the Bible says, an unholy fire before the Lord. And God struck them dead. I mean, this is serious stuff. That we make sure that our hearts are right in our right worship. Worship is not about ritual. It's not about tradition. It's not even about uh, liturgy. Liturgy can be good when your heart is right. And your focus is not on the liturgy for liturgy's sake. But that's what happens. I know people who pick a church based on whether they have liturgy. I they'll say, I like liturgy. Well, I do too. But just because you like it doesn't mean that that's God-honoring if your love and your worship is for the liturgy more than it is for God. So we just have to be ever so careful here. Would you agree? Amen? I haven't even gotten past page three in my 10 pages of notes. Something tells me we're not going to finish chapter eight. We'll have a part three next week. And that's okay. That's okay. But we go back to what Dean Ng said. He who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. I like what an anonymous uh, atheist wrote. Um, understanding God is like teaching calculus to a worm. Isn't that good? So, to the world, they can't be good enough. They just can't figure it out. To us, 
We rest in the work of Christ. We're not good enough. We'll never figure it all out. But we rest in the grace of God extended to us through the work of Christ on the cross. We have peace. I don't need to know everything. Amen? Okay. Uh, now, where we're going to go, I'm not going to go into it tonight because it's, it's lengthy, and I'd like to give the teaching in whole. So let's just, let me give you a, a capsule picture of where we're going, okay, in the rest of this chapter, okay? So first, Solomon affirmed that no God could compare to Israel's God, the Lord. I'm so glad he said that. I just wish he had obeyed it, you know, two chapters later. Uh, and secondly, he's going to ask the Lord for his continued presence and protection. So Solomon, in this wonderful prayer at the dedication of the temple, begins to intercede in behalf of the people. Now, who were the ones that interceded for people in the Old Testament? The priest. The priest. Solomon's not the priest. But in this case, he's also not in the temple trying to act like a priest. He's acting like a godly king. And even the godly king wants the people to flourish under the obedience of God, the blessings of God. So it's a good thing. Uh, so he's going to ask the Lord to continue to provide his presence and protection for the people. That's verses 25 through 30. And then in verses 31 to 54, he's going to list, this is very interesting. I can't wait to get into this with you. He's going to list seven Israelite prayers that would require the Lord's response. He's going to mention seven prayers that require the Lord's response. That's verses 31 through 54. Uh, and those prayers, they're prayers of supplication. And what he's doing is he's recalling the detailed list of things that God did for the Israelites before him when they were in the wilderness, when they were in bondage in Egypt, and even entering the Promised Land. He's going to recall different instances, seven of them. So he's going to hold God to the things that God has already done for the people before them. I think there's something in that uh, that's good. Um, you're not telling God what to do. You're not treating Him like a genie in the bottle. You're simply saying, Lord, I know of your works. Your works are great. And I know that in the past, this is what you did, and it was good. Lord, would you do that again? If people start to drift, would you do it again? If they drift into the same reasons that the Israelites drifted into when you rescued them, would you rescue these people too? This is a good king with a good heart. It kind of lines up with what he told God when God said, what do you want of me? And he said, I want wisdom and discernment that I might rule your people well. Well, I think this is what he's doing. He's praying the right prayers here. Uh, and, and so it, he also acknowledges if they break the law and they don't return, he, he's big on repentance in these verses ahead of us. Big on repentance. Just because you you provided for Israelites who drifted before doesn't mean you'll do that again if we don't repent of our sins. Remember? And so that's what he's doing here. Now, if you want the parallel of this, this wonderful prayer, the more extent, extensive, comprehensive prayer is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 
and you can pick it up around chapter 5. It goes like three chapters long, two, two or three chapters. That's this prayer, okay? So this is like a concise, consolidated summary of the great prayer that he prays. Second Chronicles chapter 5 through, and when you get to chapter 7, the people have all gone home, he's finished praying, but he's put all these requests before God. And now, when he's alone, God comes to him. And God says this to Solomon at the close of this time. He says, Solomon, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. That great prayer that we've all heard and even quoted, it's on this prayer of Solomon that God says that. So God is really trying to set Solomon up for blessing and victory. And for some reason, Solomon chose to go a different route. And the reasons will come forth as we continue. So Solomon prayed that the Lord would judge between the wicked and the righteous in verse 31 and 32, that the Lord would forgive the sins that had caused defeat in battle. That's in verses 33 and 34. That the Lord would forgive the sins that had brought on drought. That's verses 35 and 36. By the way, all these things happened to the Israelites prior to Solomon that the Lord would forgive the sins that had resulted in national calamities. Verses 37 through 40. That the Lord would show mercy to God fearing foreigners. Please show mercy to the foreigner who's not even a Jew. That's verses 41 through 43. And then he prays also that the Lord would give victory in battle. Verses 44 and 45. And finally that the Lord would bring restoration after captivity, verses 46 through 54. See, just because God promises doesn't mean we possess. We have to walk in faith and obedience for God's promises to be a blessing. This is the biggest takeaway for tonight's teaching. Even though we haven't gotten to the point where we see Solomon, forget that. But he will. Just know it's coming. And just as sure as it's coming in the Bible, it is sure that Satan will try to tempt you from having a heart bent towards God, staying fresh and real in the worship of the one true God, not being led astray into all kinds of other ridiculous beliefs and traditions, some of which are in the Christian church. But stay true to the one true God. Amen? All right, so next week we'll pick up at verse 27. We started at verse 26 and we made it to verse 26. Okay, anyway, nothing wrong with that. Somebody, if you've been around me a long time, you've heard this a hundred times, but I love it. Somebody asked the preacher, they said, boy, you went a little overtime today, didn't you? When his sermon, you know, you went overtime today. And he looked at him and said, over whose time? The Lord's or yours? Isn't that good? Okay, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you tonight for the goodness of God. The goodness of God. There's so many things we cannot explain and we can't understand that happen in this world. 
things that break our hearts, things that just don't seem to line up where one plus one equals two. Sometimes we don't even see it clearly enough. But one thing we know from the Word of God is you are a good God. You have never ceased to be a good God. With all the things we read in Scripture that just don't make sense to us, things that seem harsh and hard, yet in, even in that, you are a good God. If we dig deep enough, we'll see the goodness of God. And so, Father, we pray that the enemy who would try to distort and mislead us and misdirect us in certain passages to cause us to hold back from loving you, I pray that, God, you would expose that nonsense, that people would come to the to the truth that you are a good God. And, and a good God does not ignore sin. A good God will live by truth and holiness. And that is the one true and living God. And we're thankful for that tonight. So we bless you, we honor you, we worship you. And we pray that now we can go and remain in that attitude of worship throughout the day and the night. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.